Thursday, August 7th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, David Hansen. Thanks for being here, man. Of course. How are you? I am well. This was yet another day. From time to time, someone will ask, "Well, how how do you prepare for Market Foolery? How do you like? How do you decide who's going to be on?" And in this case, it was easy because of Bank of America and the headlines over the last, I would say, eighteen hours or so, had me thinking. Even though I didn't let you know until this morning, last night I was thinking, "Oh yeah, I'm going to spring this on David Hansen in the morning because Bank of America, as you may have heard." Is reportedly close to the largest settlement ever with the U.S. Department of Justice. This is, of course, regarding the bad mortgages sold in the run-up to the financial crisis of 2008, and the numbers that are being thrown out there, somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 17 billion dollars. Nine of that billion would be fines to federal and state governments. The rest going to consumer relief. First, you saw these headlines. What what went through your mind when you saw the numbers that were being thrown out there? Probably the same thing that went through everyone's mind is just trying to figure out now which one is this related to? I mean, <laughs> I follow Bank of America very closely. I used to work at Bank of America and I was sitting there And with, you're having trouble keeping and, up yeah, with all this. Yeah, the the news came across and we were like, "Now, all right, how does this fit into this bucket and this one?" So the big numbers kind of make it hard to figure it all out because they're all so big, and it's kind of just like, oh, what's another sixteen billion? But this is this would be, and it's not confirmed yet, uh, the biggest of all the settlements that Bank of America has had to deal with. And this one's relating to mostly just mortgage abuses. It's very general, and the government basically just saying, hey, you guys did some bad things. The companies you acquired did some bad things. And instead of filing a lawsuit against you, how about you just give us some money, and we'll put this thing to rest. So. This really would be the last big settlement that Bank of America has to, has to pay. I know we've probably said that multiple times. Like, is this the last one? But this really is the last one. This would put them in the ninth inning of this legal stuff. Countrywide, what role, if any, does it play in this? Is it because in the coverage I've seen, that hasn't come up? And in the past, when we've talked about Bank of America dealing with these types of issues, the countrywide acquisition which just looks worse and worse with every passing year? Uh, or is the countrywide stuff, for all intents and purposes, behind them? No, this is almost entirely countrywide. Okay. Uh, so, leading up to the crisis, Bank of America plus Countrywide plus Merrill, Merrill Lynch issued a, almost a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> almost a trillion. Around a quarter of those went bad. Of the ones that went bad, only 4% were Bank of America, the legacy Bank of America mortgage-backed securities. So, 96% were from Countrywide or Merrill Lynch here. So, that's the whole problem here. This is still all the legacy companies that Bank of America acquired over the years. So, Countrywide's still rearing its, its very ugly head. And the stock, we hear all the time, the market hates uncertainty. Even though this is not a done deal, it hasn't been announced, it is being widely reported. You would think, I would think, that the stock would, I'm not saying it's going to pop because Bank of America is enormous and it's not a stock that's that's really ever going to pop, but I expected a little bit more of a jolt, maybe three or five percent or so. And last time I checked, it was, it was up like 0.2 percent. That's really interesting that you say that you would expect it, it to jump because it is removing uncertainty from the equation. But I think a lot of people out there, after seeing that headline, if you didn't follow the Bank of America story and you didn't follow the sector very closely, you would see 
$17 billion payout. Oh my gosh, I'm going to go check online and see how much this stock is down after hours. And you would see that it's flat. And I think that just reinforces the fact that the market is so forward-looking that this is in the past, and they're still paying it out. But in terms of future performance, this isn't going to dictate what that future performance looks like. I mean, the stock trades above its tangible book value now, which is kind of a the market saying, all right, the problems are behind. We expect them to make a certain amount of profit going forward. So the market is already looking past this stuff. And it's just a reminder that you can't anchor on these bad things forever because the market moves past them and it's already priced it in. Where are the big bank stocks right now? And I say right now, meaning, well, obviously right now, but we've got earnings from all of them in the rear view mirror. Bank of America aside, are they fairly valued? Are they cheap? Is there one in particular you like right now? Or you just say, no, depending on various pros and cons, from the standpoint of the stocks, they're all uh, about in the same neighborhood. They're definitely more fairly valued than they were a couple of years ago. And it's easy to say that with the hindsight bias of saying, oh, obviously we should have bought them two years ago when they were trading at huge <laughs> right. discounts to book. But it was harder. There was more, like you said, uncertainty. We weren't sure kind of what the profitability, what the regulation is going to look like in the future. So I think they're, they're pretty fairly valued if. I looked at the market as a whole in terms of sectors. This is still one of the most hated sectors by investors. You hear very smart investors come out and say, you know what, I'm just not even going to mess with the banks. And it can be scary to hear really smart investors say that. But then on the flip side, it's kind of like, well, you want to be buying things that other people don't like. So if there was a sector that I think in this market is still relatively undervalued compared to everything else, I would say the big banks definitely still fall in that category. It would seem, and I say this as someone who does not own any of the big banks, but it would seem to me that if you're looking at your portfolio and you're thinking in terms of categories in some way tied to stability, and so you've got a section of your portfolio that is large cap, they're not going to light the world on fire, but they're also not going anywhere, and maybe they're paying a dividend. It would seem like the the big bank stocks fit in that category just as a Johnson & Johnson would, or ExxonMobil. Yes, a little bit. Feel free, but... to, feel free to say <laughs> I'm completely wrong. <laughs> but bank, banking is an industry where you can get really exposed as opposed to ExxonMobil. Something very drastic would have to happen for them to fall 80% right. and not be able to recover. I mean, Citigroup, Say they're not going to recover to their pre-crisis highs basically ever. It's just not going to happen. Uh, that's not necessarily what would happen with Exxon because it's so tied to to leverage in the economy. It can happen in banking where you can kind of get wiped out. So I wouldn't say it's the same as you can buy these and they'll be good forever. There are some maybe, but it's right. not the same. Say what you want about ExxonMobil. They're not engaging in financial engineering. They are not. For that matter, Thankfully. neither is Johnson and, & Johnson. And I want to say one more thing on the the countrywide acquisitions and the Merrill Lynch acquisitions. Like I said, in hindsight, we look back and say, oh my gosh, these were so bad. These were terrible acquisitions. What was Ken Lewis thinking? Horrible. But I went back and looked today at kind of where the stock prices of those two companies were at the time of acquisition. And if you were subscribing to Buffett's, you want to buy when everyone else is fearful, be greedy when everyone else is fearful, that's what Bank of America was doing. So Merrill Lynch was down 81% from its 52-week high when Bank of America made the announcement that they were going to, they were going to buy the company. Countrywide was down 88%. So these were scenarios where, at the time, you could say, well, they're buying it so cheap. It's down 88%. What a great move. They're coming in scooping right. scooping off these companies. So 
we already have the information now. So the hindsight bias we're looking at and saying, well, obviously it was bad. But we have all the information now and we can make the story as, oh, Ken Lewis was an idiot for buying these. But you could also make the, time, make the case at the time that he was being very savvy and picking these up on the cheap. But sometimes people are fearful for the right reasons. And this is one of those cases. So that's one of those sayings that Buffett has. And everyone always talks about it. It's much easier to say it than to do it. And it's not as easy as just saying, the stock is down, everyone hates it, therefore it's a buy. Because sometimes it should be down. Final question on B of A, and then we'll move on. Brian Moynihan, the CEO, how is, I'm asking you to play mind reader, but how do you think he's feeling, assuming that these reports are true and you know maybe in the next day or week or so, this thing gets signed, sealed, and delivered? I have to believe that on some level he's relieved that this is over, if in fact it truly is the ninth inning, as you said. And possibly he's he's now in a position where he can run the company the way he wants to run it without this this burden that he's had for the last six years. I don't know what he's thinking, but I would be a little bit happy, but also a little bit nervous because you kind of lost your biggest excuse now. If something doesn't go right, right you can't just be like, well, we're working through the legal stuff. We're working through it. Now it's up to him to run a, a good bank and a profitable bank, which he hasn't been asked to do yet. Maybe he can do it, but maybe he can't. So uh, the big excuse is kind of off the table, which is good, uh, but also potentially bad. We'll see. Keep the email questions coming. Radio at fool.com is our email address. We'll get to the ones that we can. We got an email from Phil Schneider in New York City. Uh, I have a question about when to take profits. I've been very fortunate with Under Armour and Intel. And while I think they have room to run, something tells me to pull back a little. Good problem to have. Let's let's just start there. So, so, um, but but I think that is something that a lot of investors do wrestle with. Whether it's a stock that has outperformed your expectations or has done exactly what you thought it would do, the whole question of well, wait a minute, at what at what point do I take profits? Uh, just for your own experience, and we, we don't have to delve into Under Armour and Intel, but just w- when do you take profits, or what triggers it for you? I try not to, uh, because you want to buy something and just hold it and hold it and hold it and not have to worry about that. Because buying's buying's an easy thing to do; you just click buy in there. But selling is 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 hard, like you said, and this is something that every single investor deals with, right? I mean, you have a stock that's very successful, and you you just have the feeling that it's. It's too, it's too, it's too high, too quick. So on the feeling part, if if Phil's lying awake at night saying, "Oh my gosh, Under Armour, it's a lot of money's tied up in that right now," he needs to step back and ask himself, "Is that money that should be invested in the market? Does he need that in the next three to five years? If so, maybe he should sell it for that purpose because it's not aligned with his risk profile. I'm not sure what Phil's situation is, but that would be one reason on the feeling in terms of actually." selling shares of a company, what I think every investor should do is always ask, okay, after I sell, what do I do with that money? Because the the process doesn't end when you hit sell, right? I mean, you right. have to go do something with that money. You either are committing to holding more cash in your portfolio. If it's not in a tax-deferred account, you're going to be paying taxes on that. So, you would have to find another opportunity if you wanted to reinvest it. That is the opportunity would have to be even better because you have to pay taxes on that. You're you're selling a dollar and only getting eighty five cents if it's long term capital gains there. Uh, so you always have to look at what's the opportunity cost. What do I want to do with this cash? If you don't have a good answer for that, and you just have a feeling that it's run up too high, 
I would not be selling on that on that feeling there. Yeah, you had a great point there, particularly about the what are you going to do with the money? Mm-hmm. Because that's always like, and and by all means, if you have a better place for your money, if you have stocks that are on a watch list, and you think, well, you know, then that's a great way to fund those purchases. But yeah, you do have to take the taxes into account. You also have to think just in terms of, you know. Figuring out what goes beyond just the gut feeling, because as as we've talked about before, if you write down reasons when you're buying a stock and you go back and you look at them, and you think, well, something's changed, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you got to be able, just as you need to be able to articulate why you're buying a stock, you really need to be (laughs) articulate why you're going to sell it. Right, and and assuming that he did did the homework, did the research on these companies, did had a, a comfortable valuation in mind when he bought them. A lot of times, investors will will do all that work up front, and then once they buy the stock, they'll never do that again. But holding a stock is basically the same thing as buying a new one, right? I mean, you still have to reevaluate the company. Is the valuation does it make sense right now? Are there better opportunities for my money? So, one thing that he could do is revisit the companies as if he does not own them, and kind of go through the same process. Maybe. The expectations have changed for Underarm. Maybe they're growing sales at a faster rate than he thought. So maybe just go do some back of the envelope math. It could be as simple as that. Do a do a full model. Maybe whatever the, you want to do. Maybe the World Cup just happened. Exactly. <laughs> um, so so just go back to your initial starting point and and do the same thing again. And if it doesn't make sense, then you look at other opportunities. Maybe that is the reason to sell, but don't just sell because it's gone up faster than you maybe thought it was because maybe the business is doing better than you thought it would be. When it comes to your own portfolio, do you think in terms of categories of stocks, whether it's regarding their risk profile or the industry that they operate in? Because I'm just thinking, okay, let's say just for the sake of argument, he decides to sell these two stocks. I'd be curious if his plan is to buy other stocks, are they in the same category? Are they? It's like, well, I want exposure to retail, so I'm going to go out and try and find another retailer. Or, you know, sport. I think sports apparel is big, so mm-hmm. I'm going to sell my Under Armour because Nike's trading at a, a cheaper valuation. I don't know if it is. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, it definitely it, is. <laughs> um, and you know, the same with Intel. Well, I have another large tech company that I think is is trading at a cheap valuation, so you know, I'm going to go there. Um, do do you? Do you think that way about your own portfolio, or do you, or is it just no? Every stock is its own entity, and and I'm not, I'm industry agnostic. I'm industry agnostic because you're getting into the category of making somewhat more macro calls, which finding a, an individual company and project and predicting kind of what the earnings look like and modeling that out is hard enough. Moving to the macro level is is very very hard, and when you get to doing that, and you say, "I think the retail industry as a whole is good," that becomes very hard to do. Um, so I personally look at the individual opportunity and say, "What does this company's future look like, and how does the current valuation fit into that?" Rather than, "What are the outside forces impacting this business?" And before we wrap up, we still have a few weeks left in the summer, so that means we are. Starting to say goodbye to our summer interns, and I wanted to just uh, give a shout out to the three folks we've had in our investing group who've been interns with us this summer: Aaron Bush, uh, Mabel Nunez, and Brian Wells. Uh, they've just been fantastic to work with. Uh, the analysts uh, that you listen to here on Market Foolery 
have been working with them and just have been singing their praises for the last, uh, basically, since they walked in the door. It's, it's really an impressive group, and, and hopefully someday we'll get them back in the door as full-time fools. Uh, David Hanson, thanks for being here, man. Of course. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.